Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Romans. As you can see on the screen behind me, we are continuing our year-long journey through the epistle uh, to the Roman brethren, talking about the gospel according to Romans. And we're looking at the great things that Paul has contained in there about the gospel of Christ. And tonight that's going to bring us to Romans the ninth chapter. But I'm actually going to begin with the last couple of verses in Romans 8. So be ready to read right there in just a moment. It is great to see everybody this evening. I'm glad that you're here. I know that we do have uh, several of our folks that are traveling and away from us for various reasons, but we do have guests once again tonight. We're thankful for your presence, and we're glad that you've come to worship with us tonight. I've enjoyed getting to sing with you. Just really enjoyed getting to sing those good alto lead songs. I was actually going to lead uh, Let Me Live Close to Thee Wednesday night, but I was just glad to not lead it and be able to just kind of sit and uh, blend in in other parts uh, and join in with the singing this evening. So thank you for that. That's been encouraging. But I hope you're ready right now to do some serious Bible study. That's what reading in Romans requires of us. And so read with me, if you will, in Romans the 8th chapter. This is verse 38, right down at the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. There Paul says this. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think it is safe to say that nobody likes broken promises. Benjamin Franklin once said that promises may get you friends, but not keeping those promises will turn them into enemies. And I think generally speaking, that is true. You really haven't seen anything until you've seen the wrath of a seven-year-old that was promised, we're going to go to the park later. But then mom and dad don't fulfill that promise, they break it. You'll see how quickly that little one can become an enemy. Or maybe on a more serious note, we think about the pain and the anger and the hurt that comes whenever a spouse is unfaithful and they break the marital vows about forsaking all others. That can make enemies very, very quickly. Nobody likes it whenever people fail to keep their promises. Well, in Romans the 8th chapter, Paul has just got done shouting from the rooftops some of the grand and glorious promises of God. That summation that we just read in verses 38 and 39 really is just the tip of the iceberg. As Paul says, God has promised that we can be saved by His power. We can be more than conquerors over sin. Nothing can stop us from going to heaven if we want to go. But Paul, of course, always being a couple of steps ahead of his readers, he anticipates that some of his audience in Rome is probably thinking to themselves, yeah, Paul, that all sounds good, those are great promises, but I don't know, are you sure that God's really going to keep all those promises? Because you know, once upon a time, God made a bunch of big, grandiose promises to the nation of Israel, how they were His chosen people, how they were going to be saved, but... I don't know. Look around. Doesn't seem like a lot of those Jews, a lot of those Israelites are actually being saved. What in the world's up with that? Is it possible God didn't keep His promises? God didn't keep His word? What's up with that? Well, welcome to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. 
Because that's exactly what Paul is going to deal with here in this particular section of the book of Romans. There is, in many ways, a fly in the ointment. It is a messy and sticky situation that really has the potential to foul up all of the great things that Paul's already laid forth in chapters 1 through 8. And even more so, this is a situation that is just personally painful for Paul to have to talk about. Because Paul himself, he is a Jew. He is from the nation of Israel. And so he needs to talk very candidly about why it is that his brethren in the flesh, the Jews, why they are not receiving the gospel. By the time Paul puts the ink to the papyrus, it's almost A.D. 57. And it is clear by that time that Christianity is going to be a religion that is largely dominated not by Jews, but by Gentiles. And really to complicate matters, the Jewish reaction to the gospel is not merely one of indifference. Oh, we're not interested in that. You can can just give that to the Gentiles. Oh, no, 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 no. The Jews' reaction to the gospel was out-and-out hostility as they radically persecuted and opposed the gospel at every turn. We've been noticing that in our Wednesday night study in Acts. What that means then is that means that the people who are becoming Christians just in droves are the people who used to be pagans. While on the other hand, the people who should have been the most religious people in town, the Jews, they're passing on Christianity. And it is that dynamic then that is creating even more tension in the church at Rome where the Jew and Gentile friction is already at a fever pitch. Because while Paul's had to spend many of these early chapters kind of dressing down the Jewish Christians, some of their religious snobbery about how they are the descendants of Abraham, leaning so heavily upon their ancestry, their lineage, their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul now is going to have to deal with some Gentile snobbery. There's some arrogance on the part of the Gentile Christians who were looking down at their Jewish brothers and saying, Oh, bless your heart, brother Jew. You and your people, you're the ones who rejected the Messiah. You rejected Jesus when He came. Bless your heart. Y'all are just a little slow on the uptick, aren't you? You all are the ones who did not receive Jesus gladly the way that we Gentiles did. That just kind of makes us a notch or two higher on the spiritual totem pole. In fact, kind of gets me thinking if maybe we Gentiles, we are God's chosen people, not you. And so Paul has to step into that mess. And he has to try to answer some very pointed and prickly questions. Questions like, has God let the Jews down? Has God failed on His promises? Is that what maybe accounts for Israel's most re- mostly rejection kind of attitude toward the gospel? Well, what Paul's going to affirm again and again and again in these chapters is that you and I and the Romans... They can absolutely count on God. God does not fail. God has never broken a single promise. And you know what? If there does happen to be some kind of a breakdown in the relationship between God and man, it's not on God's end of the equation. Now unfortunately, this particular section in the Roman letter, it has become a hotbed, it's become a playground for Calvinism and all kinds of Calvinistic doctrine, particularly the doctrines of predestination and unconditional election. And as I've said many times throughout this study of Romans, I really have no interest at all in getting bogged down in all of that stuff, especially since the doctrine of Calvinism did not even exist 
when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. However, there are some verses, there are some passages here in this section, especially here in chapter 9, that I think could be troubling to you and I as we read them if maybe we kind of bring some preconceived ideas from Calvinism into the text and it might cause us to think, well, yeah, it, it kind of sounds like some Calvinistic stuff. And so what I'm going to do is I will take, mm, I don't know, 60 seconds right here at the get-go to just address this mistaken thinking that God has somehow already chosen all the individuals who are going to go to heaven and God's already chosen each and every individual who's going to be consigned to hell. First and foremost, as we're working through this passage this evening, you need to know that much of the choosing, and we're going to see that language a lot, choosing and choice and those sorts of words, much of the choosing that Paul will talk about here is not talking about how God's going to choose people to be saved. That's not the kind of choosing he's talking about. Paul's going to use some illustrations to talk about how God chooses specific people for service. He uses people in order to carry out His will and to accomplish His purposes. That's an important distinction. Which would then lead me to say, secondly, that none of the choosing that God does here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, or, or really anywhere else in the Bible, ever is designed to override a person's free will and their own ability to make choices and decisions for themselves. Our God is in control. He is sovereign. That will be borne out in this text tonight. But that does not ever mean that God interferes in people's decisions to either accept Him or to reject Him. I think if we'll just keep kind of those couple of big principles in mind as we're reading along here, then we'll not have to worry about John Calvin or any of his ilk causing problems as we're studying here in Romans tonight. And so, with that out of the way, this evening, what I want to do, what I need to do, is I actually need us to read this text. And you may have noticed on the title screen a moment ago, I had Romans 9, 10, and 11, and yes, we're covering all three of those chapters this evening. That's kind of breaking my rule about doing a chapter at a time, but I really kind of already broke that rule last time when I broke chapter 8 up into two parts. I'm going to try to put all three of these chapters together this evening. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. Number one, kind of just practically speaking, as many of you know, my time here is nearing an end. And I was encouraged to try to finish out the book of Romans before we're gone. And so... The only way I thought, saw that was going to be able to happen, looking at the number of dates and spots that I've got to preach between now and the time that we're gone, the only way that's going to happen is if I do a three-for-one tonight. And so tonight we are going to do three-for-one. But secondly, probably more importantly, these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, they go together. This is a complete unit of thought. Paul is developing some ideas here that all go together. The chapter and the verse divisions, we of course know those were added later by men. And so it just makes sense for us to try to keep all of this all together. And while it may seem like a tall order to try and cover three chapters, add up the verses, 90 verses in one setting, I am going to remind you how that church at Rome would have first received this epistle. Paul didn't send each and every member their own individual copy of the Roman epistle. They got one letter. And that one letter was then read in the hearing of the assembly. People didn't get to take the letter home and read it in increments or in sections. They all had to hear it together, which means everybody had to pay careful attention. There was no room for lazy listening. Everybody had to be attentive to the Word so that they could understand it. And this evening, that's what I'm needing to encourage you to do. 
I need you to read along with me. Maybe that's one of the advantages that we have is that we do actually have copies of the Word of God ourselves. You read the text with me this evening. I'll make some observations along the way. I'm not going to be able to dissect every word of every line this evening as I have been doing a lot in this Roman study. But I will make some observations and then we'll just kind of wrap it all up at the end with a kind of a really important takeaway from this entire section. And so, if you're ready to read... Let's read. Get your Bibles out. Romans chapter 9. Let's read beginning in verse 1. There Paul says in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? What what are you so upset about? Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers... My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, even though many of the Jews had been very hard on Paul and they had made his life very, very miserable, Paul still loved them. And you read Paul's words here, he's willing to do just about anything in order to see them be saved. And as he thinks about those Jews, he is reminded of all of the blessings that had been bestowed upon the Jewish people throughout history. Blessings that, not the least of which is the fact that the Messiah was born from them. Jesus was born as a Jew. But of course, all of those advantages, all of those blessings, they are for naught. They are worth nothing if those people do not accept Jesus as Lord. And so it's just killing Paul. It absolutely kills him that so many of his kinsmen, they seem to have forgotten that they were the recipients of these blessings. They weren't the source of these blessings. They were merely recipients of those great blessings. And it's just as a result providing a huge barrier for them coming to the Lord. And so what is responsible for that? What's accounting for the Jews not accepting Jesus as the Messiah? Well, Paul says, I'll tell you this first of all, it's not the Word of God that's causing that problem. Read with me in verse 6. Paul says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, here's a quotation from Genesis, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What Paul says in these verses is actually something that he kind of began to introduce back in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Maybe make a footnote about that. And that is that being a physical Jew, being a fleshly descendant of Abraham, well, that's, that's nice and all. It gets you some advantages, but that's not what really matters. That's not what's most important. If that were the case, Paul makes the point, then even the Ishmaelites 
would have a claim to being the people of God because Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. And they could say, well, well, we're descended from Abraham. Hey, that makes us the people of God. And he gives even another illustration along those lines. He talks here about being a descendant of Isaac. If being a descendant of Isaac, if that's what really, really matters, well, well, then even the Edomites could lay claim to being the people of God. The Edomites are the people who descended from Esau. That was Isaac's other son, other than Jacob. And so Paul's pointing out here that it's not about that you can just trace your family tree back to Abraham and to Isaac that's most important. That's not what's most important. What Paul is setting forth here is a really important idea that I think is the key to understanding all three of these chapters. And that is that there are two Israels. There are fleshly Israelites and there are spiritual Israelites. Now, just being an Israelite according to the flesh because of who you were born to That's nice and all, but but in the end, that doesn't help anybody when it comes to their soul's salvation. But when you have faith in Christ, then anybody, Jew or Gentile, anybody can become a spiritual Israelite. And it is those people, the spiritual Israelites, that's who's going to be saved. And so Paul talks here about how God did some choosing. God chose to work through Isaac. God chose to work through Jacob in order to bring about the Messiah into the world. And in like manner, God has chosen to serve, or excuse me, to save all of those who accept His Son by faith. And yeah, that even includes Gentiles. Now, probably a Jew was probably thinking at that time, well, well that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, us Jews, we're the folks who, I mean, we've been kind of holding down the fort for all these years. We're the folks who've been keeping the law. We're the folks who are being circumcised. We're the folks who are observing the Sabbath. We've been doing this for century after century after century. And now all of a sudden, God's going to just let these Gentiles in and be a part of His special people? That just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Well, what Paul says next in Romans chapter 9 is he says, well, it's not an issue of God being unfair or God being unjust. Quite the opposite. Verse 14, chapter 9, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You know, if God wishes to save Gentile people the same way that He saves Jewish people, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, then, well, God has the right to do that. God has the right to make that decision. He gets to decide the terms and the criteria for salvation, how that works, who gets to be in, and all that sort of stuff. In fact, notice in verse 16, Paul points out there that human beings, we do not have that right. That is not our place. That was a problem for Jews in the first century. Remember when we studied in Acts 15 verse 1? You had Judaizing brethren. They were trying to dictate the terms of who gets to come in and who doesn't get to come into the kingdom. Absolutely not. That's not for human beings to decide. Paul actually quotes some passages here from the book of Exodus to illustrate how God chooses to operate and He can do that. He uses the example here of Pharaoh during the time of the plagues. Let me ask you. Could God have just destroyed Pharaoh on the spot? 
Could God have just sent down a lightning bolt right out of heaven and just, just got rid of Pharaoh and just got rid of him you know, entirely right from the get-go and didn't even have to fool with him? Of course, God could have done that. God could have chose to do it that way. Well, why didn't he? Well, Paul points out that God chose to manifest his power through that wicked ruler. And you know what? If that's the way that God saw fit to magnify his name, if that's the way that God saw fit to best accomplish His purposes, well then who are you or me or anybody else to come along and tell God, God, you got it wrong. God, I think you should have done it this way. God, I think you should have done it that way. That's not anybody's place. In fact, that's what God, or excuse me, that's what Paul goes on to say next, and that is that God, God knows precisely what He's doing. Verse 19, pick up there, verse 19. You will then say to me, well, well why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, what if He did that in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, Those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon earth fully and without delay. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. No one, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're an American who is so smart and seems to know everything, Nobody is in a position to ever pass judgment on the potter, on God. He is the potter. He is the master chess player. He knows what's going on. He's able to see the big picture of things. He knows where all the pieces are going to fit and where they'll fit best. And so if God saw fit to choose one Jewish boy over another in order to bring about the lineage of Jesus, well, well that's God's choice. And if God chose to use Pharaoh's rebellion and hardness of heart in order to demonstrate His magnificent power, well, then God could do that. That's His choice. And likewise, if God chooses to exercise patience with a bunch of rebellious, unbelieving Jews here in the first century, these vessels of wrath, verse 22... If God does that and puts up with them for a time in order to have His mercy just be magnified even more toward others who would accept Him, then that is well within God's right to do. God knows what He's doing. In fact, those verses that we just read in verses 25 through 29, what Paul points out is that, that this was not just some recent decision by God. God didn't just make this choice just kind of on the fly out of nowhere. No, God's always been making provisions for a remnant. God has always been planning for Gentiles to be admitted into His family. Paul does some quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Hosea, quotes a couple of prophecies from Isaiah to say that God knew long, long ago how all of this was going to end up shaking out. Those vessels of mercy, 
they would end up including some Gentiles and they would also end up including a faithful remnant of the Jews. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But what all of that means is that means that God, God is not to blame for the nation of Israel and their rejection. You know who's responsible for Israel and their rejection of the gospel? Israel is responsible for that rejection. In fact, that's what Paul says at the end of this chapter. Verse 30 now. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Why why, why didn't they? Because, verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, they were but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How ironic is it that a bunch of pagan Gentiles got it, while a bunch of super religious Jews did not get it? And what Paul says is he says there's really two fundamental reasons for that. Number one, Israel was trying to be right with God through their works, through all their good deeds, the good things that they were doing, the observance of the law and all of the rituals and things that went along with that. They were trying to be justified and right with God through their works and faith seems to have been absent from that equation. They thought that their ticket to heaven was, hey, we just need to check all the boxes, make sure that we observe all the Sabbaths, make sure that we eat all the right foods, make sure that we do all this kind of stuff and bam, we're ready to go to heaven. Instead, what they needed to do is they needed to trust God. And they needed to love God. And they needed to serve Him out of a heart of love and trust for God. But then Paul points out secondly in this text that the other problem with the Jews is that they they just tripped right over Jesus. They did. Even though the Messiah had come from the Jews, even though many of these Jews got to see Jesus in the flesh face to face, I mean, they got to hear the Messiah, see with their own eyes, They just missed it. He was not what they were looking for. He didn't look the part. He didn't sound the part. He didn't fit their image of what a Savior needed to be. And so they ended up just stumbling right over Him. And what do you do when you see a rock that you stumble over that causes you to trip? I know what I do. Turn around and kick that rock. I hate that rock. I don't like what that rock did to me. And that's exactly what the Jews did to Jesus. And so Paul concludes the ninth chapter by citing from Isaiah once again, to say that, yeah, most of the Jews, they haven't become Christians and they're not becoming Christians. And you know what? It's their fault. It's their fault. God did not fail upon His promises. Israel is who failed. Now, right about here, Paul makes those kinds of statements. Right about here is where we're probably going to be inclined to kind of get up on our high horse and say, well, yeah, it is their fault. That's what you get. If you don't want to get on the ball with Christianity, if you don't want to follow Jesus and do what's right, well, well, that's on you, pal. And come judgment day, we're going to see who gets the last laugh. But That's not Paul's attitude toward these Jews. Paul has a very different attitude toward these unbelieving people. Instead, Paul continues in his anguish for these people. In fact, he's even praying for these people. Beginning of chapter 10 now, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire... And my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Can you picture it? At the cross, 
the scenes leading up to the crucifixion? Can you even picture more zeal than what you saw on that occasion? As those people cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him, let His blood be upon us. There was some zeal there. It wasn't according to knowledge. Paul's thinking about that. Verse 3, For they being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, if anybody knew about misguided zeal, it was Paul. Paul knew firsthand about the kind of trouble that you can create whenever you really, really think in your heart that you're doing the right thing, but you're not actually doing the right thing. Paul says what he was praying is he was praying that the zeal of those Jews, that it would be redirected. Zeal's a good thing. You just need to get it pointed in the right direction. It needed to be shaped and molded by proper knowledge. And furthermore, what Paul's praying is he's praying that they'll stop trying to earn their righteousness, trying to earn righteousness with God based upon their religious performance, all the checklist sort of stuff, and that instead they would humble themselves, submit to God's plan for making men righteous with Him. And how does God do that? He does that through the gospel, through faith in Jesus. In fact, I'll call your attention to that expression that's used in chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law. That speaks to the fact that Jesus was and is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. And so what Paul is praying is he's praying that these Jews, they would finally come to the acceptance that Jesus is the way, He is the only way. Rick's going to lead that as an invitation song momentarily. He's the only way for a person to be in a right relationship with God. Stop try, trying this you know, do-it-yourself way of getting into heaven. Just submit to Jesus. In fact, what Paul goes on next to do is he goes on to show that there are actually two contrasting paths to salvation. I know that I just got done saying that Jesus is the only way to God. But did you know that the Bible actually talks about that there are two ways to God? That's right. Look in the very next verse, verse 5. It talks about the difference between those two paths. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments, they should live by them. There's path number one to get to God. We'll talk about that in a second. But then there's the other path, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? That the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord, He is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Path number one is in verse number five, where Paul references the very thing that Moses had said back in Leviticus 18 verse 5, that yes, it is true, a person can be made right with God if they keep the law. Now that shocks us to hear that and for me to even say that, but 
That's what Moses said in Leviticus. In fact, that's what Jesus even reiterated in Matthew 19. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 10. Unfortunately, that path, keeping the law, it is the much more difficult path to God. Because if you're going to keep the law, you have to keep all of it. And furthermore, you have to keep it perfectly. And on top of that, that pathway is the much less traveled path. Because the only person who has ever traveled it successfully was Jesus. Everybody else who's ever tried that path has sinned and they have failed. They've never been able to finish it all the way through. Which is why, if you do start down that path, it ought to just bring into even greater light the other path. The path to God, and that is through faith in Jesus. It is the simpler way. You know, you don't have to go begging and combing through heaven for a Savior, as verse 6 and 7 talks about. You don't have to go summon and try and digging up in the earth. Maybe we can find a Savior down here. Nope. Jesus has already done all of that for us. Furthermore, it is the way that is the most accessible. As Paul talks here to these Jews in verse 8, he says, it's nearby. I mean, it's right there. It's so close. If you just open up your eyes, if you take the blinders off, you'd see it, you'd be able to smell it and taste it, and you'd grab right a hold of it. Maybe I should say as well that the biggest difference between these two paths is that one of those paths, it grants salvation by a person earning it, and the other grants salvation as a gift. It is God's gracious gift. And for many of the Jews, I think that's where the rub came in. That I don't want to have to depend on somebody giving me a gift. I don't want to have to submit to the lordship of another, in this case, Jesus. That's the idea of confession in verse 9. If you will confess that Jesus is Lord, I'm submitting myself to that person, surrendering to that person. And furthermore, verse 12, I don't want to be considered on equal footing with all these dirty Gentiles. In fact, look at verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That idea of calling, it carries with it the idea of making an appeal. It's a person crying out and saying, I'm helpless. Think about Paul as he makes his appeal to Caesar. He's saying, hey, I'm kind of helpless in this situation. And so I'm asking for a favor. I can't do anything about it. I need you to help me. That's the idea of calling upon the name of the Lord. I'm helpless here. I can't do anything. I need your help. Why won't the Jews make that appeal? Well, what Paul says next is he says it's most certainly not an issue with hearing. It's not that the Jews haven't heard about this good news of Jesus. Oh, they've heard. They've heard all about the gospel. In fact, what Paul describes in the next few verses, these are very famous verses to us, is he describes a chain, a series of events that must must take place in order for anybody to be able to hear the gospel. Romans 10 verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never even heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Verse 16, but but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So verse 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This passage just speaks to the fact that God has gone to incredible lengths. 
in order to make His message of salvation clear and understandable. God's made that message just so widely available. Think about how God uses the vehicle of preaching and preachers who are sent forth, who go into all the world and they share that message, they spread that word. Nobody is ever going to be able to accuse God, point the finger at God and say, God, I never had the chance to hear the gospel. You were hiding the gospel from me. Or maybe I did see the gospel, but man, it was so complicated and so hard to understand that I just couldn't even comprehend it. Nobody will be able to say that. The good news is available for anyone and everyone. But we maybe notice there in the middle of all of that, verse 16, Paul's talking about all this good news, and then he has to almost kind of stop for some bad news. Paul painfully quotes from Isaiah 53 and in verse 1, as he makes the recognition that, you know, not everybody believes the things that they've heard. Yeah, everybody has a chance to hear, but not everybody believes it. Not everybody has faith that ends up being produced through the hearing of the Word of Christ. Some people have that message penetrate into their ear holes. Step one is accomplished, but it doesn't always end up penetrating into their hearts. And that's exactly the issue of these Jews that were Paul's contemporaries in the first century. And that's exactly what Paul says in the remaining verses of chapter 10. Pick up in verse 18 now. Paul says, he starts asking some rhetorical questions, but I ask, have they, have the Jews, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, the words of the preachers, the messengers. Verse 19, well, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Maybe it's an understanding problem. Yeah. First Moses said, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then later Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, verse 21, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul kind of just starts asking out loud, all right, what's... What's the reason that maybe the Jews have not accepted this message that they've heard? Maybe the the wires were down on the telephones. Maybe the batteries were drained on their cell phones. Maybe the Verizon guy was walking around, can you hear me now, can you hear me now, and the message just wasn't getting through. No, no, it wasn't a hearing issue. And furthermore, it wasn't a comprehension issue. It's not that they heard a message that was, oh, it's just so complex and complicated, I just didn't understand that. No, as Paul points out in these verses, even Gentiles who were not always known for being super intelligent, even they got it. And in fact, some of them got it even when they weren't necessarily looking for it. They weren't even searching for it, but when it got plunked down in front of their face, they said, ah, that's pretty awesome. I want some of that. The root of the problem was what? The root of the problem for the Jews, verse 21, is they had obstinate hearts. The word contrary, or maybe your translation does use the word obstinate. It comes from a family of words that means to speak against, to contradict, to oppose, to refuse, to reject. The picture in verse 21 is vivid. In fact, I think it's probably one of the most painful, vivid pictures in all the New Testament. It's the picture of a father who all day long He stands with his arms outstretched, begging, pleading, please come to me. Please, I am inviting you to come to me. 
Will you not come? Look, here is my son. My son who will show you the way. He is the way to bring you to me. I want you to be saved. I want you to come home with me. And yet in spite of all of those pleas, God's invitation was rejected again and again and again. We've noticed at the beginning of chapter 9 and chapter 10 just how anguished Paul was for the Jews. Maybe what we ought to notice more importantly is just how anguished God was for these disobedient and contrary people. I think that's a powerful image. I'll come back to that at the end of the lesson. All of that then brings us to chapter 11 where Paul now picks up that original question beginning in verse 1. Chapter 11 verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? Does this make God a promise breaker? If He's rejected His people, what's the answer? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know, or excuse me, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? When he said, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I, I alone am left and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? God's reply was, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, Paul says, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul says it's obvious that God has not rejected all of the Jews because, well, Paul says, because I'm a Jew. Nobody can just say, well, I think God's just turned anti-Semitic on all the Jews. No. No, Nobody can say that. Nobody can say that God just rejects anybody and everybody who bears the name of Israelite. What Paul's pressing here is he's pressing the need to kind of reconsider and redefine the meaning of Israelite. In fact, we need to redefine the meaning of that term, His people. Who are His people? Well, His people are the ones who have remained faithful to Him even when others rejected Him. And Paul kind of builds that by using the example of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 after the contest on the top of Mount Carmel when Elijah, you know, he thought that was going to lead to this great just, you know, kind of revolution of people coming back to God and it really kind of had the opposite effect. And Elijah just thought that all of God's people had rejected him and he alone was the only faithful person left. God comes along and reminds him that, yeah, Elijah, while there are millions of Israelites according to the flesh, actually not all of them are true Israelites. Only about 7,000 of them were true Israelites Because they are the ones who did not bow the knee to Baal. They're the ones who remain faithful to the Lord. That's the measure of a true Israelite. And so Paul describes them in verse 5. The key word there is the word remnant. And it was those faithful few, that remnant, who they then were a part of spiritual Israel. And just as it was back in the days of Elijah, Paul says so too, is it? During the first century when he writes this letter that there is still a remnant. There were some Jews who at the present time embraced Jesus as the Christ. Paul was one of those guys. The other apostles, a bunch of people on the day of Pentecost, a bunch of people who followed Jesus while He was here upon this earth, they embraced Jesus and they were saved, not by works of the law, verse 6, but by the grace of God. Grace through faith. 
And so what about the rest of those Jews? Well, well, Paul says some tough stuff about the rest of those Jews. Verse 7. Verse 7 he says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, that remnant, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Most of the Jews, most of the Jews had chosen to harden themselves against the truth. Most of the Jews were kind of content to just kind of remain on the outside of God's favor. And that was the sad reality then. In fact, I dare say that's still the sad reality today for people who are physical Jews, people who are actually descended from Abraham and can trace their lineage all the way back there. Paul, in talking about this, he quotes from Moses and Elijah and David, just right here in these couple of verses, who had foretold, prophesied, that yes, the majority of Jews, they were going to continue in their stubbornness. They were going to continue to bend their backs. That's probably an allusion to the slavery of sin. They're in the position of that older brother. Do you remember the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son? Where was he? As the father and the others were celebrating and rejoicing over the prodigal who had come home, where was the older brother? He was outside. He was on the outside looking in. And he was out there and he was mad. And he was upset about that. And he didn't like that. He wasn't willing to come in and accept the Father's grace. As one writer put it, these Jews, they were very much trapped in their own stubbornness. And I think that actually hits the nail on the head. But maybe the interesting thing that happened through the rejection of the Jews is that actually that ended up benefiting the Gentiles. That's what Paul says next in verse 11. In verse 11, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, no, by no means. Rather, it's through their trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Now, Paul's going to kind of direct, I need to talk to the Gentile people in that church. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the rest of the world, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. See what Paul says? God's able to kind of work things together for good here. That the unbelief of the Jews it actually ended up being a blessing for the whole rest of the world. What ended up being offered to the Jew first, Romans 1.16, it was rejected and then was offered to Gentiles, to people like you and I. And the Gentiles, they gladly received that. And that in turn was then causing some jealousy amongst those Jews. They saw what the Gentiles were enjoying. They got jealous about that. Hey, I'm not really sure about all of that. What Paul says is, Paul says, I'm actually looking to leverage some of that jealousy to call some of these Jews to take an interest in the gospel once again. And in fact, Paul's got good intentions about that. Verse 14, he wants to see that some of them might be saved. God's still working to kind of bring all these people home because that's what's most important to the Lord. God wants everybody. 
God wants Jews, Gentiles, black, white, young, old, male, female. God wants everybody to be a part of His family. God's not looking here to replace the Jews. That's not God's intention. God's not, you know, kind of one strike and you're out sort of thing. Hey, now I need to find somebody to replace them. That's not what God's going for here. God's looking to bring as many people into His kingdom as possible. In fact, that was something that the Gentile Christians at Rome needed to keep in mind. That just because they had made the good decision to accept Jesus and to become Christians, that didn't mean that they needed to get the big head. And so Paul warns them, gives them some admonitions, beginning in verse 17. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, then neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen... But God's kindness to you provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, talking about the Jews once again, if they, do not continue, if they do not continue in their unbelief, then they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, then how much more will those, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? That's a very wordy section of Scripture. And Paul uses this illustration of the olive tree to talk about the idea of grafting. I don't know how many of you have a green thumb or have done this on your farm. Grafting is an important concept for a lot of farmers. It's the idea of actually really kind of patching on the branch from one tree onto another tree so that it can be grow in, it can be molded and bond itself to that tree and then literally over time it then becomes a part of that tree. Paul says, you Gentiles, you need to remember that you once upon a time were like that wild branch. But now, because of God's mercy, you've been grafted on to the good tree. And as a result, you get to share in the life-saving nourishment that comes from the root. The root, of course, is the Lord. And so Paul says, because of that, you need to be extremely thankful. And furthermore, you need to be humble about that. You need to remember, you're not the root. Jesus is the root. You're just a branch. In fact, you guys, you Gentiles, you arrived kind of late on the scene, but by the grace of God, you are in now. So don't sit back and look down your nose all smug-like and arrogant about the rebellion of the Jews who keep pushing Jesus away. Don't somehow think that you're even better than your Jewish counterparts within the church at Rome. Absolutely not. In fact, Paul reminds them, verses 19, 20, and 21, that they in themselves need to be very, very careful. Because if those Jews could stumble and fall away, then the same thing could happen to them. Don't get to thinking too highly of yourselves, lest you too get cut off, verse 22. Yes, you've been the recipients of God's kindness, but that's provided that you remain in His kindness. In fact, Paul concludes that section by saying that Gentiles, they also needed to be hopeful. They needed to be prayerful. That those Jews who were in rebellion, that they'd stop being in rebellion. 
We want to hope for them to return to God as well because if God can graft in these wild branches, well, then it's a piece of cake for God to graft in once again those natural branches. That's no problem for God at all. Which then leads to the culminating ideas in verses 25 through 32 where Paul says this, verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. You know, in God's wisdom, God saw that the best way to spread the gospel throughout all the earth was not for all of the Jews to accept everything about the Messiah all at once. Rather, God saw that this partial hardening of the Jews, that actually that needed to occur first. Because that would then open up the door for the Gentiles. And once the door got opened up to the Gentiles, well then those Jews still on the outside, they would look at that and say, Wow, I think I need to reconsider. I think I might need some of that. This is God orchestrating everything together. I would have you be cautioned in verse 26. Don't get thrown off by that expression there that all Israel will be saved. Lots of people in the religious world have lots of wild ideas about that. How Israel needs to be reconstituted as a state. And how ultimately God's going to bring all of those Jews to heaven. That's what God's ultimate purpose is. That's not what this is saying. Who have we been talking about through all three of these chapters? Who is it that is the true Israel of God? Is it those physical descendants of Abraham? No. It's spiritual Israel. It's people who serve the Lord. And that's exactly who Paul says those people can be. Those physical Israelites, they can become spiritual Israelites. And they can then join the rest. They can join these Jews and these Gentiles who are already Christians. And we can all join together and we can all be saved. And while those Jews, Paul says, verse 28, while those Jews, they might be acting like enemies and just acting very contrary right now, Paul reminds the Gentile brethren that they are still beloved by God. God cares for them very much. Even though they're acting very unlovable, even though they're acting like a bunch of petulant, disobedient kids, the Father still has His arms outstretched toward them. And what God wants is He wants to extend mercy to them. The same mercy that the Gentiles had received. God is eager to give them that same mercy. This is the wonderful deliverance that God offers to all peoples through the gospel. And so then Paul closes this entire section in Romans 9 through 11 with kind of a hymn. I don't know if you've ever thought about Paul as a hymn writer, but it's really kind of what this last little couple of verses is. In verse 33, this beautiful ode to God. He says in verse 33 of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord 
or who has been his counselor. I mean, who could have ever dreamed any of this up except God? Verse 35, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God has worked tirelessly and relentlessly to make it possible for anyone and everyone to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. How wonderful, how marvelous are the works of the Lord. I appreciate your good attention this evening. I promise you this will be the last longest lesson that I will ever preach here. I will not do this to you again. What this does is this sets the stage for chapters 12 through 16, chapters that I'm very eager to talk about, chapters that are very practical, chapters that all of us will be able to grab onto with both hands because there'll be things that we'll be able to say, all right, this is the application portion of the letter. We'll get into that starting next Sunday night. As we get ready to extend the invitation of Jesus, as we think about this invitation song that He is the only way, can I draw our attention back to the end of chapter 10? The image that was used there of God in verse 21. How He stands there all day long with His arms outstretched, asking, begging, pleading for His rebellious children to come home to Him. What we saw here in Romans is that those Jews by and large, and in fact even to this present day, those Jews have continued to reject that invitation. This evening, God's arms are outstretched to anyone and everyone who needs to come and to be received by Him. And we're asking you this evening not to make the same mistake that those rebellious Jews have done for so long. We're asking you this evening to humble yourself, to come before the Lord, prostrate yourself before Him, accept Jesus as God's Son, recognizing He is the only way, Submit yourself to Him. Submit your will to His through faith and obedience to the gospel. Tonight we have the opportunity to baptize you into Christ for the remission of your sins, to help you to become a child of God so that you can get on the road that leads to heaven, that leads to the way, the final way, the way unto the Lord, that heavenly home. Can we help somebody tonight to become a Christian? Brother or sister, if you've not been living right, you need to know the Lord's arms are continuing to be outstretched. He wants you to come home. And if we can pray with you and encourage you so you can serve the Lord in a better way, then that invitation is offered for you as well. Whatever your need may be tonight, come to the Lord. Accept that offer. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.